Let's pray as we open God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you that we live in a time and a place where it is readily available to us, where we can sit in our homes and read it and glean from it and hear from you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can take quiet moments with your word where your spirit can speak to us. Lord, it is beautiful that it is is living that it is constantly something to be discovered. There is constantly something that we can learn and, and be brought deeper in. And Lord, I pray for that this morning as we talk about mercy. Teach us, Father, what it means as we look at different examples in your word today. And Lord, more than that, help us to be merciful. Help us to be people who are marked by mercy for those who know you and especially for those who don't. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5, where we've been sitting for the last several weeks now. And we are in Matthew 5, verse 7 this morning. Jesus gives another beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so that's what we're going to unpack together this morning. And just as a reminder, last week we looked at the fourth beatitude. We looked at blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And we said last week that one of the overarching ideas was how vital is God in your mind? How vital God is how important the supremacy of God is in your mind will determine how much you hunger and how much you thirst for righteousness because righteousness fundamentally means being right with God. And so how important he is to you determines how much you desire to be right with him. So that's what we said last week. And we said that righteousness means, first of all, that we have a a personal walk with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit but also that we have this desire in our hearts for righteousness. Not only does the Spirit make us righteous, but we desire righteousness in our hearts. We desire to be in right standing with the Lord, in close relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we desire is we desire to walk rightly with God. We desire to do His will and keep His commandments. And so righteousness is, yes, that We have been made right through Christ, but also that we continue to long for that righteousness by upkeeping what the Lord has called us to as followers of Christ. And that brings us to today's beatitude. Blessed are the merciful. Because it's reasonable to say that this beatitude, as well as the following two when we get to them, reflect some of the ways in which followers of Christ walk out righteousness and hunger and thirst for righteousness. We live out righteousness by being merciful. We live out righteousness by living in purity. We live out righteousness by being peacemakers. And so these next three beatitudes are really about how do we walk out that righteousness that we hunger and thirst for in our hearts. And so today, before we start to look at what it means to be merciful, 
I want to make sure that it's clear for all of us in our minds that Jesus' intent here when he says, blessed are the merciful, is not that he is focusing on specific acts, but rather he's talking about an inherent quality that we are to be marked as, as his followers. And so when we read, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, we should not read it as a type of situational application where we can say, okay, I was merciful here, and so I can check that box. That is not what Jesus is looking for. That's not what he has in mind here. His intention is saying that we should have this quality of mercy about us that should permeate our entire being all the time. We should have this merciful constitution about us. He is concerned with our character. He's concerned with our nature, one of the overall qualities that we are to be marked by. Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to how this is Jesus' aim here and notes that this is really the aim of the entire New Testament. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord is concerned about our disposition. And that, of course, is essentially the New Testament teaching. A Christian is something before he does anything. We have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. And so we have to be merciful in our nature before we will respond situationally with mercy. And so what I want to consider this morning as we look at this beatitude is four pertinent questions. First, how do we become merciful? If we are to be merciful, how do we become merciful? How do we grow in a merciful disposition in our hearts? Second, what is mercy? What does it actually mean to be merciful to another human being? Third, what, what can get in the way of us being merciful? What do we need to protect our hearts against? And then fourth, is there ever a proper time for Christians to seek justice? Because Jesus doesn't give us a beatitude. Those who are just will receive justice, as those who seek mercy will receive mercy. So is there ever a time that Christians can seek justice? And if we are called to mercy, how does that play out? And so these are the four things that we want to look at this morning. And so first, how do we become merciful? How do we grow in a merciful disposition in our hearts? And there's at least three catalysts in the Christian faith that cause a person to become merciful that I want to look at this morning. The first one is going to seem like your typical church answer. It's going to seem like your typical Sunday school answer. But regardless, it is the most important. And so first, of course, mercy is a quality that grows in the heart of someone who has received the Spirit of God in them. Right? It's a typical church answer. Right? You have to have the Spirit of God in you. It is in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we become merciful in a way that is acceptable to God. Second, we can actually learn the second thing by looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant. There's a parable of the unforgiving servant that is recorded later on in the Gospel of Matthew. And by considering the grave error that the servant makes, we can understand the second catalyst that helps us to become more merciful. So Jesus gives this parable in Matthew 18. And before that, Peter comes up to Jesus and he asks him, well, how often, Lord, am I supposed to forgive my brother when he wrongs me? You know, seven times? That seems pretty reasonable to forgive someone seven times. And Jesus, of course, says, no, no, 70 times seven, right? a lot more than that. And then the Lord goes into this parable of the unforgiving servant found in Matthew 18, verse 23 to 24, 
or verse 23 to 34. And so let's read it together this morning. Jesus says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went on and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Okay, so Jesus says this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. So in this scenario, God is the king, and any one of us can plug ourselves into the place of the servant. The servant owed a great debt to the king, which he could not pay. And what's really important to note is because this is really important to note because the the king was well within his rights to punish the servant. He was well within his rights to seek justice from the servant because the servant could not pay. Now, to give you an idea of what this servant was facing, 10,000 talents would be equal to about 200,000 years of labor. Sounds fun. It would be equivalent to about 60 million working days. So in our modern money, this servant owed the king approximately $3.5 billion. That's what he was facing. Now that seems crazy. But what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to make us see this servant owed such a great debt. You and I owed such a great debt to our Lord and Savior. We could not pay the debt that we owed to God, and yet he came in and he gave us mercy through Jesus Christ when we put our trust in him. And so the servant, owing this money, he, he falls on his knees and he pleads for mercy and he says, I will pay you everything. Now we know there's absolutely no way, and the king knew that as well. There's no way that he'd be able to pay all of the money that he owed. And this is a picture of us. There's no way that we could pay the debt that we owe our Lord. And yet, when the servant pleaded, the Lord had mercy on, or the king had mercy on him, and he forgave him, and he paid his debts. We can readily see ourselves in this scenario. Jesus had mercy on us and paid our debts. But immediately after this, the servant goes out and he finds one of his servants who owed him a debt of 100 denarii. And so just to give you an idea, $3.5 billion, $362. That was the difference. 
So this servant owed him $362, and he demands that he pays it. And he begins to choke him. And this other servant pleads with him, says, okay, give me time. Be patient, and I will pay you. And this is a debt that could have been paid. And he refuses, and he throws him in prison. Now, in both scenarios, the men who owed money could rightfully be punished. This is retributive justice, to be rightly punished for something you owe. The Biblically, the opposite of mercy in a situation like this parable is not injustice. It is not wronging another person. It is not being harsh with someone or over-punishing them. It is retributive justice. It is taking the required punishment for what you owe. But the servant received mercy from the king, yet he did not show mercy to his own servant. So what can we learn from this parable in regards to how to become merciful? You see, the grave error that the servant made when he didn't show mercy was that he did not appreciate, he did not acknowledge the mercy that he had first received from the king. He completely ignored that he had just been forgiven of a debt so much greater than the one that the servant owed. And so we become merciful when we acknowledge and we understand that we were sinners, that we understand and we acknowledge the amount of debt that we owed, the great debt that we owed that we could not pay. We become merciful when we recognize the punishment that we would have faced justly if justice have had it, has had, it way, had, had had its way. We would have faced hell. If the Lord had carried out retributive justice in our case rather than mercy and grace over our life, we would have faced hell. And so we become merciful when we recognize the great debt that we have been forgiven. The third way that we become merciful can be seen when we look at the only other spot in the New Testament that this specific word for mercy is used. The specific Greek word translated merciful recorded in Matthew 5-7 is used only two times in the entire New Testament. Once here and once in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Now the central argument of the letter of the Hebrews is that Jesus is greater Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law, than any other thing that humans could give or offer their allegiance to. And that salvation comes through him and him alone. That is the overarching message of the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 2, the writer is reminding his audience not to neglect their salvation. And they're teaching how that salvation is received and who it comes through. And the writer highlights the work of salvation that Jesus performed, saying the following in Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that say? It says, Jesus had to become like those whom he was saving in every respect. He put on flesh. 
He experienced all that we experienced, though without sin. And it says, so that, he did that, so that he might become a merciful high priest. He became like us so he could show us mercy, having experienced our joys and our sorrows and our temptations of being human. And so what do we need to take from this? We need to take a principle that we become merciful when we understand we are like those who require mercy. Meaning we recognize the only difference between a follower of Christ and a non-Christian is the initiating, saving, and continuing work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God in our lives. Knowing this is the case, we reflect Christ by working to understand where another is coming from. Why they struggle with the sins that they struggle with. As Jesus became like us, we try to understand others so that we may show them mercy. Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know what this means for followers of Christ? This means anyone and everyone who is outside of a relationship with Jesus. Especially those who are seemingly in direct opposition to what we believe. You come across someone who's on the far left side of the political spectrum. You come across someone who is pro-choice. You come across someone who's in the LGBT community someone who is persecuting the church, a drunkard, someone who's promiscuous, our response to that person is not judgment, is not justice. Our response to that person should be trying to understand where they are coming from, that we may show them mercy. We are to be marked by mercy. Because I guarantee some of us would be, or were, or would still be, in one of those groups, apart from Christ. And we must never forget that. So this is how we become merciful. But then what is mercy? And we've already seen an aspect of what it is from the parable of the unforgiving servant. Mercy is giving the opposite of what someone deserves in a situation. So the first aspect of mercy is that it involves the forgiveness of the guilty. But the second aspect of mercy is that it involves compassion for the suffering. So it involves forgiveness of the guilty and compassion for the suffering. In regards to forgiveness of the guilty, some of you may be wondering, is that not what grace is? And yes, that is what grace is, but grace and mercy work together, yet they're slightly different. There's this quote that's just perfect by this unknown person. Nobody knows who said it, but this is what the quote is, and it explains the difference perfectly. Grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. So grace covers sin. Mercy relieves misery. Both are at work in true forgiveness of the guilty. 
And so think of mercy in this way. Mercy sees pain and wants to relieve that pain. Whether it be the pain that comes from sin, whether it be the pain that comes from living in darkness, or whether it be the pain that comes from suffering as a result of a fallen and broken world and no fault of your own, whether it be homelessness or sickness or ailments or poverty or any number of physical afflictions, mercy wants to remove that suffering. The merciful want to relieve other people's pain. And so then what can get in the way of this? What do we need to protect our hearts against as followers of Christ? And there's three things that I see just in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that, teaches, that Jesus teaches about this. First, again, we've already looked at Matthew 18, 33. He says, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so the first thing that can get in the way of mercy is a misunderstanding or a willful ignorance of the debt that we owed. If we think our position in God's kingdom has anything at all to do with us, and it was not a gift from God, we will be left likely to show mercy. If we take pride in anything in our natural lives, kind of like what Paul talks about, right? I had every reason to be confident in the flesh. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law of Pharisee. I had all of these things that I could have pride in, and yet I count them as nothing because of Jesus Christ. And so if we take pride in our natural proclivities, that will stop us from being merciful to someone who does not excel in the same area. Kind of reminds me, those of you who uh, watched The Chosen, I think a lot of you probably watched The Chosen, but in season two, episode one, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but when Jesus calls James and John, when they actually names them the Sons of Thunder, and it's because they're, they're in Samaria, and the Samaritans come by, and they're basically hollering uh, insults at Jesus, and I think they throw some rocks at them, and James and John's response to that was, Lord, like rain down thunder on them, like bring down lightning, like make it rain fire. And Jesus is like, really? Like really you think that's the response here? But it's an example of what can happen, right? James and John, they were Jews. They saw themselves above the Samaritans and yet the Samaritans are there hurling insults at them. Oh, smite them, Lord. No, we're called to have mercy. The next example, the next thing that can get in the way is Matthew 9.13. No, sorry, Matthew 9.12. No, Matthew 9.13. <laughs> Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this was... A situation right after Jesus had called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Presumably from what the text says, it looks like Jesus went back to Matthew's house. And the account tells us that he's reclining at the table with many tax collectors and sinners. So probably some friends of Matthew or some colleagues of Matthew. And the Pharisees see Jesus doing this and they accuse him of eating with wicked people. Right? The tax collectors 
or the, the, the Pharisees saw the people as problems that needed to be avoided in order to stay ceremonially clean. That's not how Jesus saw them. Jesus saw them very differently. And he says in Matthew 9, 12, he says, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick need a doctor. And this tells us how Jesus was viewing these people. You know, by our culture standards, the tax collectors would have actually been in a really good position. The tax collectors were quite prosperous. They had a good position in the Roman state. They were doing quite well for themselves. The Jews hated them because they saw them as betrayals, betrayers, but they were doing well for themselves. So outward appearances, the tax collectors were doing quite well. But though they were rich, you know, we can sometimes put value on riches. Jesus sees them for what they are, that they are unwell, that they are sick, that they are in need of a doctor. And like the parable of the servant, we can learn from the Pharisees' negative response to the tax collectors and sinners. You see, the Pharisees were enslaved to religious knowledge. And being enslaved to religious knowledge can get in the way of being merciful. What do I mean by that? I mean that the Pharisees approached the things of the law with their head, never their heart. There was this coldness in their appropriation of the law. They knew it well. They knew it perfectly in their minds. But it takes the correct heart posture to apply it correctly. And when this is missing, it leads to this kind of academic approach to faith where people become problems if they don't fit with certain things that you think or believe. So we need to protect against this kind of academic mindset of faith. Being enslaved to religious knowledge can make you blind to what actually matters, to the needs that are all around you. The last way that we can be enslaved is seen in Matthew 23. Thank goodness Jesus included so much stuff regarding the Pharisees so we can see some of the negative parts of our own hearts, right? Matthew 23, 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, admittedly, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, I had no idea what Jesus was saying there. I was like, That's clearly an insult that none of us understand in our culture. And so it takes some background for us to understand this, but it is rooted in Jewish law. And the Jewish law says that Jews could not eat insects unless they had jointed legs. Well, a gnat does not have jointed legs. And so it's one of the insects that were unclean under Jewish law. So what they would do is to prevent accidentally eating an insect or ingesting larvae of an unclean insect, the most pious Jews would actually put a piece of cloth over their water cans when they drank water so that the cloth would catch any bugs and strain them out. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is contrasting the practice of straining out a gnat, being worried you're going to accidentally swallow it. Meanwhile, you're eating a camel. 
which is also an unclean animal. So what Jesus is confronting here is he's confronting the Pharisees' great effort. He's confronting the religious practice that the Pharisees would go into such a great deal of effort to avoid possibly committing this little tiny offense against the law, all the while they were committing such graver offenses against the law in their hearts and doing nothing about it. You strain out a gnat and you eat a camel. And so relating it back to the verse before, Jesus' assessment of them in verse 23, where he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you miss the weightier matters of the law. He's saying, you can be so concerned with religious matters. You can be so concerned with tithing the right amount of mill and dill and cumin. Your focus can be so stuck there that you neglect the weightier matters. What matters more? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Meaning religious overfocus can get you can get in the way of you being merciful. You can exhaust your religious muscles with trying to be so perfect in your personal walk with Christ that you become so inward focused, you miss the opportunities for mercy all around you. Right? I missed, for example, I missed the homeless person that I walked by on the street this week, but I calculated perfectly to the penny how much 10% of my income was. That's caring too much about the wrong thing. I failed to talk to Jesus with someone from the LGBT community, but I looked pious in front of my church because I didn't consort with someone committing an abomination. That's exhausting your religious muscles on the wrong thing. It leads us to the last one. Is there ever a place for justice? When is the proper time for Christians to seek justice? Yes, there will be times when Christians are called to seek justice. However, before digging into this, I think one of the most important things that we can do is understand what our natural pull is. Because every single one of us has a natural pull either towards mercy or towards demanding justice. And I can tell you my natural pull is more towards demanding justice. And so I need to take that into account in situations. And taking your natural lean into account in situations will help you decide when you should act for justice and when you should give mercy. The beautiful thing that I love about what Jesus does here is he never gives his followers a hard and fast rule regarding when justice or mercy should be given in a situation. And he does that intentionally, I think, because religious hearts would grab hold of that and just use it to the letter. Nope, Jesus said here and not here, here and not here. And he wanted to avoid that. 
He wanted to avoid the kind of heartless application that that leads to. You know, mercy is often given and received unexpectedly and undeservedly. That's the point. And the point I said at the beginning is that it's about our disposition. It's not about getting it perfectly right in every situation. It's about our disposition. And it comes back to the importance of our relationship with our Savior, as do all things in the Christian faith. We must draw near to Jesus. We must trust Him. We must have a close relationship with our Savior and rely upon the Holy Spirit that, so that we may know how to respond in every situation, so that He may lead us and guide us in that. See, our, our faith is something that controls us. It is something that constrains us. And so we, we seek intimate relationship with Jesus. We follow the promptings of the Spirit in each moment that we're faced with. But I know for some of you, that's an unsatisfactory response. And so I'll leave you with just a couple of principles for when you should know whether you should give mercy or justice. The first thing that we always go by is that we do not seek justice from a stance of self-interest and self-defense. And my only caveat to that, of course, would be regarding that which is illegal. I mean, of course, God has given us governing authorities. He has given us laws that are good to protect people. And so, yes, there are those moments. But I'm talking about those moments when someone speaks ill against you, when someone offends you, when someone does something that you don't like. We don't seek justice based on self-interest or self-defense. We leave that to God. The second principle I would give you is the more personal the sin, the more personal the suffering, we seek mercy. The more public the sin, the more it affects a larger number of people, it's likely more right to seek justice. Whenever we pursue justice, we seek it with an eye to our own sin. Whenever we seek justice, we remind ourselves who we are, the sin that we struggle with, so that we don't become puffed up. And we pursue justice or mercy according to what will accomplish the highest good in that person's life and will give the greatest glory to God. And that is why being right relationship and close relationship with Jesus Christ is so important that we may be able to discern, God, what will be best for that person, for their good, and what will give you the most glory. Best example is my own children, your own children, right? There are moments where your children will sin, they will do things, and depending on what it is, it may show the beauty of God best by giving justice. Or it may be for their highest good and for the glory of God by showing them mercy in that situation. 
We have to discern it. But I would end with this. No matter what, whether we seek justice or mercy, anytime we go the route of justice, it is always marked by mercy. It is not a relentless justice. It is not one that wants to see people get theirs, get what they deserve. We must always be marked by mercy, even when we are seeking justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think we all recognize how difficult it is to live this out. And this is why it doesn't rely on us. It relies on your spirit who's within us. It relies on us to the extent of being close with you, seeking your wisdom, seeking relationship with you, trusting the spirit that you have given us. Father, help us to come under your authority. Help us to submit our entire lives to you, that we may be merciful, that we may reflect our great high priest. Father, remind us, even in this moment, what we once were. I think of what I once was, Lord. It would not have been wrong to receive justice. It's exactly what I would have deserved, and yet you showed me mercy. And that is the story of every person here who's a follower of Christ. And so, Father, may we never lose sight of that. Lead us and guide us. And God, in this, as in all things, may we look different than the world. We pray for your help. We pray for your encouragement in it. In Jesus' name. Amen.